0: Go ahead and find Matthew 18 with me. Matthew 18. I'd like to just start with a verse here. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Matthew 18 and verse 15. Jesus says to his disciples, Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault, between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So Jesus is, is here teaching his disciples about how to live together in community. When that community is full of people who are of less integrity than Jesus, and so let's be frank, that's every single community to ever exist, and so when there are people who are short of the perfection of Jesus, it's gonna, there's going to be conflict. There are going to be people getting crossed with each other. There are going to be people wronging each other back and forth. There will be hurts. There will be wrongs. There will be sins committed, sins absorbed. Part of living the way, the Jesus way, in a community like that, he says here, is dealing with those wrongs across the community, dealing with those wrongs in a healthy way. In this verse, he says, by talking to our brother about the wrong when he does wrong. Talking to our brother. Not talking to everyone but that brother, but talking to... That brother, But I want you to see there, there's something big assumed in the last part of the verse. And so Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You know what Jesus assumes here? It's a really big assumption. He doesn't say it, but he assumes it. If that confronted brother listens well, and if that confronted brother is willing to change, what Jesus assumes is, we will forgive him. And then you have won your brother. So assumed in there... He comes back, and then I come back. Forgiveness and the forgiven. Our whole goal in that situation is to gain back the brother, to gain back the relationship. The goal is not to chew them out. The goal is not to win an argument. But I just want you to notice, forgiveness is so fundamental to this process. Forgiveness is so fundamental to living in community. Jesus simply assumes here that that's a given if the offender listens well. And I want you to notice Peter picks up on this, picks up on this giant assumption in the situation Jesus portrays. And he expresses a worry that that I've heard many people express whenever we talk about the Bible's message on forgiveness and the liberality with which we're to give it out. Peter's worry is that forgiveness, that liberal of forgiveness, can be taken advantage of. This is verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord... How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Peter says, surely, Lord, there are limits to this. How often can the scenario of verse 15 be repeated before it becomes absurd? My brother sins against me and we go and we hash it out and I forgive him. How many times do we do that? What if that happens seven whole times? It's worth noting that um, the rabbinic advice at the time was that forgiveness should be offered a maximum of three times for the same offense. And so Peter thinks he's chosen a way above and beyond number when he says up to seven times. But to this, Jesus says in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Understand, Jesus isn't just establishing a a, a larger limit. He's multiplying Peter's number for effect. Really what Jesus is saying is, I expect my my disciples to always be willing to forgive. Forgiveness is a constant theme in Jesus' teaching. It's something fundamental to our relationship with God, and it's something that's fundamental with our relationship to one another. Jesus says we must be willing to forgive on an ongoing basis. We must be ready to forgive, and we must be ready to mean it. We must want the restoration of our relationship. We must want to gain our brother more than we want to avenge the wrong they did. So what I want us to think about this evening is how to forgive and mean it. Jesus, of course, lives forgiveness. Jesus forgives people who have sinned horribly against him. And when he forgives, he always means it. He dies so the world can be reconciled to his father and he invites us in many passages to share his forgiving heart. So this evening, I have five dimensions of forgiveness in the New Testament, all of, it, all of it, I think, helping point us how in the world we can manage to forgive in this extreme liberality, and while we do it, perhaps even mean it. So number one, the first sort of dimension of forgiveness in the New Testament is the idea of pity, to take pity. So this is Matthew 18, Matthew um, Jesus' direct answer to Peter's question is in verse 22, the 70 times 7. But then he follows that direct answer with the story about forgiveness. We'll just go a couple of verses at a time. Matthew 18 and verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment. To be made. And so we have here a king who, who calls to account one of his servants who's in deep debt to him. The sum the servant owes is astronomical. Um, the point is, 10,000 talents is, is a lifetime of work, it's a couple of lifetimes of work that he will never be able to repay. The king has every legal right to liquidate all of the servant's possessions, to sell him, and even to sell his family to try to recapture some of what is owed. And in verse 25, it seems he's about to exercise that legal right to recapture something of the debt. This is verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him. And here's what the servant says. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And so the servant throws himself at the mercy of the master I want you to notice this. The servant does not actually ask for forgiveness of the debt. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. He asks for something less. He asks for simply patience. He's just asking for a little more time to try to gather up the money, more time to work it off. That's what he's asking for. It's a more modest request of forgiveness. But the king gives him more than patience. It says in verse 27 that out of pity, he wipes the debt away. Imagine the relief. Of this servant. Of course, Jesus means to see ourselves in this servant. He imagines us to see see ourselves in abject poverty, unable to redeem ourselves, and our only recourse in our indebted relationship to God is to beg for mercy. And somehow, the servant receives it. Somehow, the King who has all these legal rights over us to condemn us takes pity on us, and in his pity on us, forgives us. But, of course, Jesus' story doesn't end there, and what he's getting at is our story of forgiveness should not end there with the great forgiveness we receive. Verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servants fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. So now all of a sudden the tables have turned. The the forgiven servant is presented with an opportunity to bless someone in exactly the same way he has just been blessed, and by the way, at a much lower price. A hundred denarii is a very manageable debt. It's something you could save up for uh, after a a few months of work. And I want you to notice his fellow servant who owes him this debt, pleased with the exact same modest request. He doesn't ask for forgiveness of the debt. He asks for patience to repay it. Have patience with me. But not only does the, the servant not forgive the debt, he doesn't even grant him that modest request of patience. He gives him nothing. Verse 30, he refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. This is an outrageous story. It's meant to be. It's outrageous to us, and it's outrageous to the king who hears about what this forgiven servant has gone out and done. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And then Jesus concludes, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother. From your heart. Jesus unambiguously applies the lesson of the story to everyone who hears it. The key to the story really is pity. Pity is the thing that moves the forgiveness action, or lack of pity is the thing that causes someone to withhold it. The king's forgiveness of the first servant comes from pity in verse 27. He took pity on him. The servant's ruthless hypocrisy comes from a lack of pity. In verse 30. And the lesson in verse 35 isn't just that we're supposed to forgive because that's what we're supposed to do. The lesson in verse 35 is that we are to forgive from the heart. We are to take pity as the master did. Pity is really the fuel that makes forgiveness possible here. So how do we make ourselves feel pity for those who have wronged us? The answer of this parable is that we remember that we were and in fact are in the shoes of the person who has wronged us. We remember what that was like. We know firsthand their situation. We know what it is to be bound to our sins. We know what it is to be unable to pay the spiritual tab we've accumulated. We have been on our knees before someone we owe, desperate that our debts not be held against us. I want to just show you a a few places in the New Testament where this is emphasized, this fact that we... We are conscious of our own sin whenever someone sins against us. And so, for example, there we go. Paul says, show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and be hated by others, and hating one another. You see what Paul says? The pity we muster toward other people comes from a remembrance of our own past. In the pitiful state we were once in. In another passage to Timothy, Paul urges kindness and gentleness with sinners because we hope, quote, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Here's one way, truthful way, to think of people caught up in sin, people who have wronged us, and that is there's just a tragic fate. They are ensnared by the devil, and we know something about that. That deserves our pity. On one level, it's a pitiful state to be in. So, the point is often we, we couple our hurt when someone has wronged us, we couple our hurt with a dangerous lie. The lie is, I would never do what they have done. Implicit when, in that lack of forgiveness is that, is that assumption. I would never do that. We can't understand it, we can't explain it, we can't get over it because I wouldn't have done it. And maybe we pay lip service, yeah, I sin too, but not like that. But the fact is, we have sinned, and as is the case with all sin, we've hurt someone in our sin. And our sins are not somehow fundamentally different from what others have done to us. And yes, there are differences in degrees, and there's differences in public exposure, and there's differences in the relative scandal associated with sin, rightly or wrongly. But we have to admit, in every case, we have sinned just like the person who has sinned against us. We have hurt other people. We have accrued, accrued a spiritual debt. We cannot repay. That's the point of the story Jesus tells in Matthew 18. Pity is the thing that helps take the edge off of the sins of others. Seeing them as something more than just a monster who has hurt us. We take pity on them. Second dimension of of forgiveness, meaningful forgiveness, is this image of setting them free. So this is back in Matthew 18. I want you to notice what Jesus says will happen if we are able to get through to the person who has sinned against us. This is Matthew 18 and verse 15 again. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So he implies that in the sin, if in the forgiveness process we gain them, what he implies is in the sin we somehow lost them. The relationship lost its way. Maybe the relationship itself was completely lost, just evaporated. Sin does this. And even when our brother longs to make that relationship right, what he says is, you, the wronged person, hold the key. If we continue to hold that brother's sin against them, whether that's in our minds, whether that's in sort of an awkwardness in the relationship and a continual hanging it over their heads or telling everyone else about what they did to me to gain sympathy for myself, we are keeping open an account that could be closed. We tie our brother to his past. We redefine him as the worst thing he has done to me. In a sense, we keep him in slavery to his sin. This is why forgiveness is painted by the New Testament writers as an act of love. And so this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4, the end of Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in a love. Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. See, kindness involves not just pleasantries and conversation, not just holding doors open for people sometimes. It involves actively putting away evils of people that they themselves are trying to put away. We act in love by forgiving them. We help them wipe the slate clean as much as we have the power to do so. Now, this doesn't, this doesn't mean, by the way, this doesn't mean we have to immediately trust someone uh, who's damaged that trust in a serious way. So, for example, you know, if it comes out that the church, church treasurer is pilfering money and he repents of that sin and we forgive him as we ought to, that doesn't mean he's entitled to be restored to his position as church treasurer the following Sunday. It shouldn't mean that. It doesn't take away the consequences of sin if we forgive someone. But it does mean that we long to set the other person free from their sin so that they can grow to be someone different than that sinner. That is what God has done for us. He has set us free from our sin. He has told us we need not be defined as the worst things we've ever done. And now, we want to help give people that freedom we ourselves have experienced. As much as we are able, we want to be set free just as we were. Number three. Number three. Here's a third image in the New Testament that relates to forgiveness. Clean out the poison. This is Ephesians 4. Turn with me here. Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4. What I want to emphasize here is that refusing to forgive someone doesn't just hurt them, the unforgiven. Refusing to forgive someone also hurts me, the unforgiver. Withhold forgiveness doesn't just hold the unforgiven person. It also hurts me, the person who withholds a forgiveness. This is Ephesians 4 and verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath, anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And then here's a verse we just read Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So in verse 31, Paul teaches us to pay close attention to our emotional responses to hurt and to replace those with tender-hearted forgiveness in verse 32, a forgiveness that is mindful of the forgiveness we've received. And and part of what he's getting at in verse 31 is that what begins with with, with righteous anger at wrong, righteous anger at the fact that sin has occurred and I've been the victim of it, and there should be a righteous anger at all sin, what what can begin as righteous anger can very quickly turn into unrighteous anger and other toxic emotions that totally derails our spiritual walk. And so he lists it. He lists how righteous indignation turns to unrighteous indignation in verse 31. One of the words he mentions is bitterness. Bitterness is is long-term resentment. It's a grudge that indefinitely affects our perception of that person who has hurt us and sometimes affects our perception of the entire world. And so the person who hurt us, we now find fault with everything they do. And we second-guess all of their motives and all their words. And if someone dares say something in praise of that person, we laugh sarcastically because how silly that is that you could possibly say anything good about them. We cannot think of them as ever doing anything good. That's bitterness. Another word he uses is wrath. Wrath is an anger that is short and intense. We might call it rage. But he also mentions something else that's different from wrath and that wrath can turn into a longer-lasting anger, he says, which is a a more constant, habitual state. We can become accustomed to being angry. We get in the habit of sort of peeling off emotional scabs and keeping the wounds fresh and keeping stoking the outrage about it. And so the anger never really goes away. It just sort of hardens and becomes a a constant companion. Clamor is another word. Clamor is when anger boils over into an explosion of angry words. But then slander is the next one. Slander is when the anger simmers at a lower temperature and is sort of let out in calculated dribs and drabs. Think of it this way. If clamor is a bomb, slander is a poison dart. We sort of share our contempt of that person with others. We we tell the story in a way that harms their reputation and spread it to the extent that other people will hate the person as much as I do. And the scariest word of all is probably the last one in verse 31, malice. Malice is an anger that has turned cold-blooded. Malice is an anger that has totally changed me as a person. Now I am different because of my held-on-to anger. My point is these emotions can hijack our lives and hinder any real growth. The wrong done to us becomes a permanent companion which continually poisons us from the inside. You heard this one before. Resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die right it's so bad what they've done to me and i continually tell myself that story so that no one else is hurt but i am and my relations are relationships are because of my resentment sometimes these toxic emotions change the way we treat everyone not just the person who hurt us we become suspicious of the next person who might hurt us the only way to clean out the poison is to listen to jesus is to forgive don't just do it for them do it for you paul says number 4 fourth image of forgiveness is the image of absorbing wrong. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be here in a second. 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the great struggles in forgiveness is the tremendous sense of injustice we feel about it. Something needs to be done. We have a sense, rightly, that when sin is done, there is an imbalance in the universe. Something has happened that ought not to have happened. Something has happened God did not want to happen. But the problem is when we think it's our job to even those cosmic scales. There's a number of texts in the New Testament that really show the shortfalls of that approach and offer a better way. I'm just going to mention a few before we get to 1 Peter. Paul rebukes the Corinthian church for their inability to settle disputes among themselves. Instead of asking wise brethren to help, instead of, first of all, working it out themselves, and if that doesn't work, working it out with the elders and wise brethren They were instead going to Gentile courts and suing each other in court. And for Paul, this isn't just an embarrassment to the church, though it is. It goes much deeper than that. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 7. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then he asks, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Paul asks, why can't you be wrong? Why is it not allowed that you be wrong? Oh, other people could be wronged, you know. I wrong someone else and I don't want them to, to hold that over my head, but I am not allowed to be wronged. Why must we get instant justice? Why must our sense of fairness be a more pressing issue than the name of Christ and our witness to the world? Why is it that me getting vengeance more important than that? To have lawsuits at all It's already at feet. Why can you not absorb wrong? We're going to read it in Romans 12 here in a second. But refusing to forgive is also an attempt at revenge in some sense. And so perhaps I can't hurt you in exactly the same way you hurt me, but I can do a little something. I can shun you. I can stop talking to you. I can tell everyone else what you did. And in my way, I'm saying you won't get away with that. I'm going to do a little something about it. To which Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He says God will take care of whatever injustices need mopping up at the end of time. And he doesn't need our help to do it right here and right now. He doesn't keep the scales in perfect balance at every moment of every day. Leave it to the wrath of God. That instructs us to absorb wrong as an act of faith in God's justice. We come now to... to First uh, Peter 2, where Peter points to Jesus as the consummate example of absorbing wrong. This is 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. 1 Peter 2 and verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you, you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And he names exactly what he means by the example of Jesus we are to follow. Verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Mark this down about Jesus, Jesus never calls us to do anything he himself is unwilling to do. Jesus has never asked us to do a single thing he himself is not not willing to do. And in this case, Peter says Jesus has already given us a model of the conquering power of grace. Jesus exhibited a far greater strength when he was being nailed to the cross than the Roman soldiers who did the nailing. Who had more strength, the guys who drove the nails or the guys who absorbed the nail? The guy who absorbed the nail. He absorbed the wrong done to him, which is a far more powerful witness than our little tit-for-tat pettiness. This is, by the way, the meaning of Jesus' famous statement, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also, right before that he says, do not resist the one who is evil. In other words, absorb wrong. Don't demand revenge. It's fruitless anyway. It's God's realm anyway to issue vengeance. Jesus urges us to become people who are known for what they can take rather than known for what they can dish out. And there's really a great freedom in in, in forfeiting our, our perceived right to justice. There's a great freedom in being able to absorb wrong. And the great freedom is other people cannot control me. No matter what you do to me, you can't make me do anything sinful back to you. You cannot force me to do sin. Try as hard as you might. You can't do it. I don't have to be bound by all my past hurts. I don't have to be bitter. You can't make me bitter no matter what you do. We can continue entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. If you're able to do that, if you're able to absorb wrong, that's power. Taking vengeance in our own hands, that's not power. Absorbing wrong and trusting ourselves to God who judges justly, that is power. Finally, fifth and and number five, keep short accounts. Go back with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, Jesus teaches us dealing properly with anger always involves acting quickly and keeping short accounts. This is Matthew 5, verse 23. Matthew 5 and verse 23. Matthew 5, 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So he's describing here, the gift here is an animal to be sacrificed. And yet Jesus says that the animal should be tied up, and the animal should be abandoned, if it comes to mind, before the sacrifice, that there is a relationship with the brother that's in trouble. And and really, what's startling about this example is, is the urgency of it, and sort of the inversion of, Priorities that religious people would tend to hold, Jesus says, worship is a lesser priority than resolving relational conflict immediately. Paul echoes, echoes this when he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil." Ephesians 4:26 and 27. Do something. Do something about it now. Seek resolution today. Close out the account. As soon as you can. Both Jesus and Paul want us to see that Christians can simply not afford to hold and nurse grudges. Issues should be addressed and, if at all possible, resolved as soon as possible. Right relationships should be restored by personal contact, contact, and they should happen soon. This protects our heart, this protects our brother's heart. This preserves peace in the community. This ensures that my worship actually means something to God and it's not just rank hypocrisy. Keep short accounts. Now, I understand. I understand this intellectually and I understand it a little bit experientially and emotionally. I understand the deep difficulty involved in forgiving and the difficulty involved in meaning it and not just saying the words. But the fact that doing what Jesus says is difficult doesn't mean we don't have to do it. It just means we need to exercise faith and emulate him, even if it is difficult. But I'm also not just browbeating you this evening into doing something you don't want to do. That's not my forgiveness sermon. Forgive, you have to, or else you'll go to hell. Though that's a message that we need to hear sometimes. But what I really want you to see is that there is great blessing in Jesus' insistent that we deal with our resentment and that we learn to forgive. There is great blessing and great wisdom in these words. Just as we have found a great blessing in being forgiven by God, we can become instruments of bestowing that blessing and sharing God's forgiveness with others. We can be conduits of that sort of thing to our brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus gave us a daily prayer that encapsulates everything I've been trying to say. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice again the taking for granted of forgiveness. We've already done it in Jesus' prayer, as we have forgiven our debtors. We've already done it when we go and ask for forgiveness. That prayer keeps us from building up resentment. That prayer keeps our hearts from the poison of bitterness and wrath. That prayer keeps the priority of forgiveness before us. It keeps us aware of our own need for God's forgiveness and how it's tied to our willingness to extend forgiveness to others. People can hurt us. Walk on the earth long enough, and it'll happen many times. But the hurts done against us don't have to poison us. You know, what the devil wants to do, and when he does it, it's really a pretty genius thing. What the devil wants to do is turn wrong done to us into wrong happening within us. What the devil wants to do is to kill two souls with one stone. Yes, he can get an evil person to do something evil against you. That's easy enough for an evil person to hurt to hurt a righteous person, but the genius is using that hurt against the righteous person to now create sin within that righteous person and the bitterness and resentment that builds up. The devil wants to turn the wrong done to us into wrong within us. Jesus is trying to show us and how we respond to the wrong done to us. We can actually save ourselves and perhaps even Get through to the person who wronged us and saved them too. What Jesus wants to do is to save two souls with one stone. To cause the sin against us, to redound to forgiveness and redound to God's glory. Forgiveness is the way we were saved from Satan. And it's how we can help save each other from him too. Whenever we are willing to forgive one another. So even all that said, it's easier said than done how to forgive and mean it. But I hope that these images will help us in this very difficult Maybe there's someone here this evening that realizes your own standing with God is not what it should be. You need to seek his forgiveness. Maybe your sin has been a withholding of forgiveness, a resentment building up in your heart. Whatever your spiritual need, we stand ready to help you, to pray with you and for you right now as we stand and sing.
1: Call obey, come for he loves you so only I now watch and wait. Terrible thought to cry too late. Jesus, I come to Thee. Only a step, only a step, come for He blessed (laughs) Really? <laughs>